Hello, welcome to uh, the Pub Scientific Podcast, the Paincast, um, the Pain Podcast, and uh, welcome again. Thank you for listening. Um, today, here with me, um, have Adam Weir. Uh, Dr. Adam Weir is a pain physician, uh, sorry, a sport physician, um, uh, works at the Erasmus Medical Center, Rotterdam, or University Hospital, uh, also in Harlem, which is a bit north, in the sports medicine clinic, sees patients um, with sports related injuries. And um, he's uh, he's known for his work um, uh, when he um, yeah you got your PhD in 2011 and um, with adductor related tendon growing pain in athletes and um, not long after that you were part of the DOA agreement uh, which sort of brought some of the terminology uh, for growing pain in athletes and it's widely used we just discussed a bit that was quite successful. Um, and um, yeah, we, we, we just gonna talk about pain in athletes and more specifically the area of the growing where your expertise and interest is. So, so thank you for joining me, Adam. Yeah, nice to be on the show today and uh, excited for the next half an hour, yeah. Good, yes, yes. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, if, I, if I introduce you correctly, <laughs> I'm happy to, to introduce the first question is that that's what, what is going on at the moment in your work and your expertise and uh, what excites you? I think at the moment, the number one thing that probably excites me is the work we're doing on adolescence. Um, so a lot of clinicians will be familiar with Severs disease in the feet or Oshkoch-Slatters in the knee. And I think there's a lot less attention and a lot less knowledge about the fact that the, the pubic bone is actually the last bone in the human body to completely ossify. Um, and this has been known, the first publication I found on it was from 1920, so more than 100 wow. years ago. Amazing. Yeah, Mr. Todd told the world that this was a fact, but this hasn't like kind of trickled down to our consciousness at the moment that children you see, or young adults you see with pain in the groin could have like an apophysitis, an Osgood Slutter style problem in the groin. But this normally happens after the growth spurt. So when you see a 14, 15, 16 year old with a painful knee, as a clinician, you'd be thinking, oh, this might be Oshkoch Slutters. This could be an apophysitis. Mm. When you see a, a 17, 18, 19 year old who's got armpit hair and can vote and drive a car, then you wouldn't, or traditionally, I wouldn't have been thinking, oh, this could still be an apophysitis in the groin. And yet this is often the case. Mm. And so I feel at the moment, in terms of exciting work, this is something where I think my clinical reasoning and the way we deal with these things in, in the clinic has changed a lot over the last five years. We've moved away from like adult diagnosis to the understanding this is a, a growing pain. So in general, would you, would you suggest that the way we diagnose or even treat adolescents compared to uh, ad adults should be different in many cases or especially in this situation? Yeah, I think that's kind of two questions. One yes. is, do we deal with adolescents differently? And as, as a father of three teenagers, I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. The way you speak to them, uh, the, the way they understand and see the world is, is different. But that's maybe a discussion for another day. And then yep. specifically <laughs> about the groin. 
I think it makes a big difference if you are an 18-year-old football player uh, and you love playing football and you get diagnosed with a traditional something osteitis pubis and that they you understand I've got inflammation or I've got damage in my pubic bone and people are these are kind of scary diagnoses or if you understand I've got growing pain in my groin my mm. my bones not as hard as an adult bone and it's a bit less able to deal with the load that you want to put through it playing football and that makes it sore sometimes mm. this is a, a massive difference in the perception of how people see their pain um, so I think yeah in that sense the the diagnosis we make has a big effect on the way we'd speak to an athlete about the pain what they understand is wrong with themselves and also I think about the expectations of our ability to cure it like if it's a, an adult diagnosis maybe there's something we can do to fix it often that's not the case but that's the perception athletes often have whereas if if you say to an athlete and to their parents oh it's growing pain they kind of there's I think like an implicit understanding that it's maybe not up to the physio or the doctor to fix it for them mm -hmm. that they also accept and understand oh this is just something that you have to sort of manage mm -hmm. uh, and that that's part and parcel of the diagnosis so yeah, a yeah. very long answer. <laughs> what is it, I, I, there's a lot of in that answer. So, so let, let's elaborate a bit more on the where I think uncertainty of diagnosis and the possibility that basically the bone is not no. basically didn't grow fully to adult. Yeah. So there are two facts, I guess, which in the management and the decision making there, where my feeling is that where where you deciding to opt for let's say surgery or uh, in, uh, inflammatory or yeah. uh, let's say medication or uh, maybe even uh, local anesthesiates um, so do we do you as a physician do you differently is that is that a is that a longer process when or a different process than compared to adults with having pain in the same area and uh, why would you, so that's the second question would be, why, what is the main reason for doing that? Yeah, so I think the, the first part about, you know, how do they present the, the clinical presentation in the adults, we use the DOA agreement terminology would be adductor related groin pain. So uh, the athlete would complain of pain around the proximal adductors they'd have pain on palpation there, pain on resisted adduction testing. The kids present in the same way. So normally they've got pain on the, the insertion where the adductor muscle inserts onto the pubic bone. Although we know in these late adolescents that it's then basically a cartilage. They've got this apophysis there that can get sore when you load it more than it's able to withstand. So the clinical presentation is the same. But your like clinical reasoning of what might be going on on a tissue level is very different in terms of how I think about that. Mm. Um, and with that different kind of reasoning about what's the underlying problem would also be different management strategies that would be very 
sort of in my mind, you wouldn't want to go down the road of anti-inflammatories or corticosteroid injections or anything for an apophysitis. Mm -hmm. um, and so the difference in, in thinking definitely affects your kind of management strategies as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I do regularly see children, especially in the academic hospital, who've been diagnosed with all kinds of inflammatory things and a few weeks ago I saw a girl who'd even had bilateral tenotomies done so she'd had multiple injections and then a double-sided tenotomy to the adductor tendons all based on the idea that she's got an injury and then actually she's got growing pain mm. uh, and so I guess this is why it's exciting to me to be on the podcast today to kind of spread the word and get this out there that these children or young adults don't have injuries as much as growing pain. Yeah, yeah so, so I think th this really relates to a paper that's been published, I think, by Tasha Stanton. I think Morton Hoog was part of that, and it was presented in the, um, the Olympic, um, well, sort of like pre-Olympic conference yeah. in France. If I remember correctly, it says like, is this like pain related injury or is it like a pain not necessarily related to injury, but it's like a pain problem Yeah, <laughs> that maybe originally has been caused by an injury, but it's not, maybe it's the injury is not as yeah. dominant or the most important driver. So how does that relate to this growing pain in adolescence particularly? Yeah, I think in the sense of how you know, perhaps does it move away the, from being a more, let's say, like nociceptive problem to perhaps going on, I don't know, central sensitization is the term I would think about, but in pain science world, that might not be the most appropriate term. I'm, I'm not a pain science expert, but the I think when the children or the adolescents have, let's say, like the wrong diagnosis underlying, then they get frustrated. Why isn't the treatment working? Uh, the, the, the pain definitely over time can become them worse and worse. Mm. Um, and that kind of becomes a negative cycle, I think. Mm. Um, so there is definitely a sort of element of chronicity, frustration and worsening pain that, that I see a lot by the time people end up in an academic hospital setting, like in the in the third line, I'd say the majority of people who come to me don't have any more just a simple nociceptive growing pain that kind of listens or is related closely to the load they're doing. Often it's become much, much worse than that uh, and kind of spiraled out of control over mm. time. Um, but at the grassroots level, I think in a, a daily football club or hockey club setting probably the majority of them have a lot more nociceptive load related growing pain that's you know sore on the day of the match and the day after and then settles down and it isn't invalidating them or handicapping them in in the week mm. uh, yeah yeah so so is it because if, if, if it's because they are young adults so you said the bones basically not as strong or hard as yeah. it can be is, is it then just a matter of time and uploading or trying to manage the load yeah that's the million time. dollar question yeah <laughs> and i'm not sure at the moment that we have the answers if it, i think we as 
in the, the field of the groin and apophysitis in the groin, mostly I look to the work that's being done in the world of Osgood Schlatter. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, I think the, the, the group in Denmark uh, with Michael Ratleff, Sinead Holden are doing some fantastic work there where they've also looked at children who've recovered from Osgood Schlatter and that recovered is like in speech marks. Um, but even years down the line, they'll have an altered pain pressure threshold. So I think as with most pain conditions, when you've had pain for a significant amount of time, you get some alterations in pain perception. Um, and I think it's the same in, in the groin. If you've had a minor bout of growing pain and, you know, six or eight weeks of a little bit of pain, then you would expect that would settle down and go away. But anyone who's had pain for a year or two years that significantly affected what they can do in terms of sports participation and impacted their life a lot, I don't think that m many of these will become completely pain-free mm. in the future. And certainly in terms of soreness to pressing on the groin, that that mm. will stay altered for years afterwards. Yes, yeah, so that is where... Is there in, in, in your clinic, especially in the, um, in the academic hospital, where, is the, where the way it's happening in the Netherlands is that you have to sort of have to some failure to some degree to, <laughs> to like the other hospitals or even in private, uh, um, private practice, for example. But having just grown, is it like a very, from your perspective, is it, is it just the growing pain or is it like the spread it? things like they do have this knee pain and they do have this shoulder that doesn't feel comfortable mm. and like the spread it is that a is that something to to take note notice of? yeah it's something i think about on two levels one is i think that there probably is a susceptibility to apophysitis in general uh, mm. so the you know the adolescent growing pain we know that a good predictor of who will get Oshkut Schlatter in their knee is which kids have had Severs disease in their calcaneus. Mm. So there is some kind of tendency to get these growing pains. And I would reason that on two levels. So firstly, maybe there is some kind of genetic susceptibility of their apophyses to this load-related injury. And secondly, maybe it's behavioral uh, on a number of levels, maybe they continuously mm. will push themselves, go into the pain, go past the pain. And the other thing that may well play a role is, I think, talent. Um, so I think the, Professor Roald Barr wrote a beautiful editorial called Demise of the Fittest. So the classic adolescent athlete would be the gifted athlete who's going to play up. They get invited to play in multiple teams, maybe join the adult team early. They'll be training the most, the most intensively. They maybe do some extra fitness work outside of their set sport routine. So they're also, their talent leads to them doing more and more loading at a time when the body's not always able to deal with that load. So that's mm. like, a, a, I think another reason that some of these kids are susceptible uh, is the fact that they're really good at their sport and very driven mm. and this can lead them to get these injuries and that's 
also a dilemma because often that talent could be a way for them maybe they want to go professional you know then and this is the age where 17 18 19 you've got to get in the picture and get yourself noticed if you want to go on to be a professional so yes. for them it's a, it's a, like a key career phase as well yeah. so we use is that then being very talented is sort of a risk factor yeah i think so for sure because if you play you know train an hour a week and play a recreational kind of match in the weekend the chance that you'll significantly overload your body is much less than if you're training five six days a week intensive training you're running faster and further the higher the level of play and your matches are much more intensive as well mm -hmm. so i think there that the amount of load is definitely an issue and what we don't yet understand is that if you would look at a squad of 20 18 or 19 year old athletes why some of them end up with these apophyseal problems and some of them don't yes um, and there that behavior may be one thing predisposition may, may be another um, i think we're only at the start of our understanding there so coming back to your question about generalized pain conditions, I think that there is definitely a relationship with other apophyseal injuries. Mm -hmm. And I think in some athletes, there is definitely also a, a more generalized pain problem. Mm -hmm. So you might end up with that with sort of two, two groups. One is the load related, who are just mm -hmm. doing an exceptional amount of load and perhaps a more nociceptive load related. And then there's another group who might have a much more widespread, generalized kind of pain presentation, even at low levels of sports activity. So mm -hmm. I think in practice, I would, I would think about them as kind of maybe two separate groups, but there's probably some overlap there as well. Yeah, yeah there must be. Yeah, especially yeah. when they're young. Yeah. Because I think when we, when we just look at when chronic pain conditions seem to, 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 emerge yeah. <laughs> in their lives is typically yeah. maybe just in young adulthood or maybe even just before it's interesting where yeah. where so where as a, as a sport physician what is your way of well as weighing the risk of let's go for it Let, let's yeah. just go get back to your routine of exercise and maybe heavy loading because it's part of their Maybe their talent, and they maybe they're just their lives, right? And, yeah. And fun, <laughs> yeah. Being part of a, yeah. a tennis group or uh, whatever sports they exercise. But where where is your responsibility as a as a sport physician, and where you feel like oh now you have to stop, and now you you can go now? So yeah. related to this um, growing pain. Yeah. Firstly, I think the main sort of role I'd like to sort of position myself in is, is as the educator the day and the, the the family and the the coaches understand what's wrong with them so it's not my duty to decide to stop or go it's my duty mm -hmm. to kind of give them the information that they understand what's wrong with them themselves and that they make those calls mm -hmm. um, so that's the role i try and position myself in as much as i can sometimes at the end of the consultation they will still ask, what should I do? <laughs> and yep. then I think you have to be happy to give a, a, a suggestion there. Um, and it's, it's a fine line. I, I can't give you a one size fits all answer because I think it's gonna be very 
context specific. Mm-hmm. That that's a bit of a political answer, maybe. <laughs> but in in general, you'd like to give them. I like the work of the Danish group again, a credible explanation so that they feel they understand what's wrong with them. Mm. Knowing that it's growing pain, I, I think definitely will kind of help for them to feel that the diagnosis is perhaps less scary than alternative diagnosis. But at the same time, the pain is real. And if you overload any apophysis too much, it will get sore. So you mm. can't just say, oh, it's only growing pain. You can ignore it all because it doesn't work like that. So it's in in practice, it boils down to them making choices. Uh, try and train smart. If they've got a sore adductor insertion on the pubic bone and the coach is going to recommend, let's do 50 free kicks with football. Maybe that's not the exercise that they should be doing that day mm. and that they have to feel empowered to say, oh, maybe it's better for me to work on some other aspects of my uh, of my football or the hockey the various moves in hockey are very mm. very heavy for the groin and they can suggest alternatives and in general I would try and take an approach where they're staying in that team setting as much as possible mm. as far as you can avoid like removal from sports because then they're not going to see their friends they're, they're losing their routine yes. Um, so finding some way that they can kind of stay in the in that setting will be really important. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that makes totally sense, and it, and I like the idea of the, the educating and giving people the information mm. they need to make a decision. Yeah. Some athletes or people will be sort of well, I just have to go for it because this is maybe because they feel like they can't ha- live without <laughs> yeah. doing it or uh, um, exercising themselves and. Uh, for some of them, it's like uh, they see themselves as a professional at some point. Yeah. So my question would be, is is this Osgood-Schlatter or the growing pain you've been seeing patients for? Is, is that, is it having growing pain? Is that a likelihood of, is that like, a, is it a, is the worst thing you can have <laughs> that can happen uh, as a, as a young athlete yeah. uh, for your future um let's say future career or even if it's not professional does it will, will is it likely that it will affect you in 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 the future mm. and the rest of your life with these kinds of growing and like I said getting getting older and then having issues that related to grow up <laughs> yeah i think that in the past i have probably been too optimistic like oh don't worry you'll grow you'll grow out of it Whereas the longer term evidence that's coming out from the knee with the Oshkodschlatter would suggest that that's not always the case. So now, where if the good research done about Oshkodschlatter, if you look at people in early adulthood who had Oshkodschlatter, lots of them still have some degree of knee complaints. So that's also where I think you have to give people realistic expectations. Like mm. if you can manage it yourself, if you can stay involved in sport, and that it will still be sore from time to time, but you know what you can do to help yourself manage that pain, that will be a, a realistic and good outcome so they can stay physically active. Um, and I would try these days to just to avoid saying, oh, you know, don't worry, in six months you'll be fully grown and the pain will be gone forever. I don't mm. think that's setting people up for, it's not fair yeah. uh, and it's also not realistic. So. 
there i think we have to be you have to be careful you don't want to make people sort of seem like it's all doom and gloom it's never going to go away <laughs> but at the same time you have to be realistic like anything that's been a significant injury and in terms of their their future as an athlete if you're in the the final stage of your junior career and anything that keeps you out of maximal training and playing could affect your chance of being able to turn pro so in that sense mm -hmm. the groin's not any better or worse than any other injury that stops you being able to perform yeah yeah so um we we are quite recently we had uh ebony rio on the podcast as well yeah. and, and um you know her pretty well from our tendinopathy research and yes um and interestingly um and I think I just, I'm not sure if I quote it correctly, but it's something you don't have to listen. 24 hours is something you don't, you don't, you don't listen too much to your tendon mm -hmm. because it can be anything, but it could be all right. Yeah. Not necessarily the, the most valid or trustworthy information from your body in the 24 hours to make a decision. But what is your, how do you feel about that? Is that helpful for you? Is it, do you feel like have a different opinion on that? Yeah, I think in, in that sense that the, the way I'd speak to athletes at the moment about it would be obviously pain on the pitch that's affecting your performance. It, you can't ignore that. Mm -hmm. um, and what kind of reaction do you have? If the reaction is less than 24 hours and it's not affecting your daily functioning or life too much, for me, I would consider that would be acceptable, especially if they're willing to accept that to be able to carry on doing their sport mm. um, and for athletes you know the, the traditional youth athlete here in Holland would train twice a week and so if their like flare of the pain isn't settling within 24 hours often you'll see that the pain starts to build up from training to training to match mm. to training and it's kind of increasing over time so I think that the 24 hour rule I would be happy to see that as a as a good guide so if it flares and it's settled within 24 hours and it's not kind of building over the weeks then that would be okay and whereas if it's going on longer than 24 hours and from one training to the next to the next the pain's increasing and increasing mm. somewhere they've got to think about how to load a little bit less uh, yeah whereas and i if i quote Ebony again yeah. uh, correctly so tendons especially when they're a bit sensitive or yeah. there is some tendinopathy they, they found that the the structure needs some time to get to get up to speed yeah and you may decide not to do the too much the jumpy stuff and yeah. to keep and trying to build up that that warming up and you'll be all right in a couple minutes but you need a bit of time because you're tendons definitely need something yeah would that be uh, would, would that be different to growing or adductor longus related pubic pain growing pain is that something is it very similar yeah yeah i think it's similar in the sense that often you know a good warming up uh, will help to settle the pain at the start of a training session mm -hmm. and then through the training session or the match the pain may come back towards the end with more intensive loading and that that can then again be a signal for them okay now i have to think about how far i'm going to push it today 
depending on what they've got coming up in the rest of the week or how important the game is, etc. So the, the, I think the similar principles definitely apply. Yes, yeah. yes. It, yeah, I think it looks like, and we've discussed this before we started this podcast, that so the generalization of like pain management, it looks like it's all exactly the same. We the more we talk about these very specific conditions and they're not just related to the condition but also to and location but also to the the age group yeah it does there is very specific knowledge and education and probably clinical reasoning is even slightly different um compared to oh because pain is there for a longer time you just give them some education and yeah trying to offload a bit and then slowly guiding people towards a bit more and but the more we talk about these um the the subjects i feel like we do we we should not overgeneralize <laughs> things and we should yeah keep it specific what what is it what is so so that will be my final question um in the in this uh, topic is that what makes the management of growing pain different to chronic low back pain hmm. Yeah, I think for groin pain, just like chronic low back pain, you, you can start with, say, a broad differential diagnosis. As, as clinicians, you need to be aware of the red flags in general. There's a lot of things in the groin that can present giving pain, but most of the time in athletes, it's going to be musculoskeletal related. Um, but there are some very specific things that we see quite common in clinical practice in athletes if we move outside of adolescence that would have, I'd say, still a fairly specific management strategy that would not be the same as an, a non-specific low back pain. Um, in the groin, I immediately would spring to mind would be inguinal-related groin pain. So this is athletes presenting with pain in the inguinal canal. Um, we know that that can be a very stubborn problem. About half of the athletes will respond well to a structured rehabilitation program. Um, so there they'll be working through uh, an activity, kind of graded exercise, strengthening the abdominal wall. But about half of the athletes uh, won't respond well to that. And there they, they would be considered as surgical candidates where they'll have a, a surgical procedure to strengthen up the inguinal canal region and about 85% of them can return to sport afterwards. So that would be something that I'd say that's a specific clinical entity. Mm. We make the clinical diagnosis with history and physical examination. And if an athlete has that as a clinical presentation, then like a a chronic non-specific low back pain approach of pain education or whatever I would think would be very inappropriate in those cases because there's a there are potentially surgical techniques to to fix the problem yeah. um, and that's a very over generalizing <laughs> answer but there that will be a specific condition that athletes can present within the groin where I would be very averse to going down the, the the chronic pain kind of road yes so would it be more uh, as common as let's say in chronic low back pain i think it's less than 10 percent has yeah. a, pre a specific perhaps uh, uh, something that's related to the nerves 
Yeah. Uh, and only an, on like a, a percent or maybe even less than one percent is like very serious signs of, yeah. of either fractures or cancer. How, how is that the numbers? Are these similar to the growing pain or is the growing pain more is could that more specific than I think that's probably really going to be related to your context. If you're working in a genu general physiotherapy practice, probably you know the, the, the serious long-standing pain problems, if you're seeing athletes, will be much less common mm. and there'll be a lot more uh, injury problems, if we can call them that. So clinical entities, inguinal-related or reductor-related, that are in my mind, more like nocioceptive mm -hmm. uh, and we'd go there for a much more active rehabilitation approach with exercises and strengthening. Um, and that's a major like dilemma in clinical practices. When, when would you kind of move away from that approach and go to a more pain management approach? Uh, and th this is something that I spend a lot of my days in clinic thinking about, like when or, you know, which kind mm -hmm. of, and that's seeing it very black and white. It's like you've got on the one hand strengthening and on the, on the other hand pain management. But I'd say that in a, in a general athletic population, then having a slightly more specific approach is probably justified. We've got some data from the groin clinic when I was working in Qatar and there in a hundred athletes, we had around eight or nine cases of a nerve entrapment. Uh, which is again a specific diagnosis mm. where you'd say the genitofemoral nerve or the iliohypergastric nerve is entrapped. Um, and that has again a specific management approach with potentially pulse radiofrequency ablation or surgery. So again, fishing mm. out these cases is going to lead you to a much more tissue specific approach. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So there, there is, but it, I think if I'm correct, so there'll be like 10% as well. Yeah. And, yeah. And maybe might be in, in the same ballpark ball, yeah ballpark. yeah so uh, yeah just from a, from a purely from a the, the the my clinical view would be like it's still more common that yeah. so it's it's less common that people have do have these very specific dominating yeah. nociceptive drivers although depending if you're working in a setting like with a, like professional athletes and they are loading is basically their job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it's more likely that will be a nociceptive driver. Yeah. But it, it's always it's always sort of combining to some yeah. degree, I guess. We can't we can't sort of neglect other factors which also do affect this growing, even if there's a specific driver. Yeah, for I sure, guess. for yeah. sure. So it's it's just about sort of and also in terms of your clinical approach, I guess trying to decide and the the that's where we don't have the painometer, but trying to decide yeah. like how much, which proportion is responsible for which yeah. proportion and also which, which combination of approaches is most likely to be successful. Yes. I think that's the, 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 that, that clinical reasoning is, uh, is what keeps you busy. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I can yeah. figure out that it's a, that's a challenge uh, yeah. for everyone. So this is, it is very, it's lovely to hear this. And I, I see the, even well compared to the um, let's say recreational athletes or sports or just general public I don't think we do see very differently but we look into the context as athletes as a job and yeah um, 
as much as a person who's trying to do his job as good as he can as a well as a construction or whatsoever yeah, yeah. it's a bit of an athlete as well right so they do very similar things and do it every day yes not so much of rest and finding that balance so um uh, interestingly it's, it's uh, the area in the Netherlands is sports physician is is a bit of a yes it, uh, it's a bit of a it's been growing right and growing in a positive way it's been people finding out oh we might see a sports physician and that that's an interesting um yeah it's interesting how things are moving where the sports physician has playing a role today in, in the day-to-day -day care and trying to move a bit to let's say general public not just if you're yeah so my question would be is it do you have to be an athlete to see a sport physician i think for sure not um but we are a small group we're in at the moment in holland we're 130 140 sports physicians so we're not you know well placed to tackle the entire population of long-standing musculoskeletal pain I would say myself in clinical practice are probably dealing with elite athletes 20% of the time and the rest of the time it's recreational athletes or people who would like to be more active than they can be mm. um, and that can be from people who like walking and, and jogging up to serious recreational or amateur athletes who are doing following structured training programs mm. um, but in general I think that you can add the most value as a sports physician if someone is really interested in physical activity. Um, mm. So if if family doctors or physiotherapists want to refer on people who are inactive and have no interest in becoming physically active, then the, the added value of a sports physician is probably going to be less. Um, and yeah. people with very serious pain conditions as well, we tend to work a lot with physiotherapists in primary care but we're not part of serious multidisciplinary pain teams so people who have very bad chronic long-standing pain as well there I would look more at rehabilitation medicine mm -hmm. uh, as being well established part of a, a team with multidisciplinary professionals yeah. so that would be my my kind of take on that but it's for sure we're we're growing specialism and a, and a young specialism and I think the, that's also part of the, the challenges for us in the future is what are we doing and what what should we kind of do less as well because we're a small group so we can't do everything. Yes, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Adam, if you can invite two people or like a good, let's go to the pub and you can invite two people, who would it be uh, from a professional point of view, I guess? So, um they don't have to be alive. They don't? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, who will be your pick for now? Wow. Um, from the medical field or yeah, even, whatever. even yeah. more broad than that? Than uh, the... you, you, it's up to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would be interested to call up Descartes and Descartes. I don't know even how you pronounce it, but I think in terms of like the, bringing in the the mind-body kind of separation and we're still here centuries later trying to <laughs> perhaps repair that but just to 
speak to them about how that sort of came about, that idea that the mind and body would be separate. I'd be fascinated to, uh, uh, to speak to them. And the other person who I'd love to invite to the pub, if, I, if we have the time machine, would be a doctor called Wharton Hood, who was the author of the first paper on the tennis leg back in the 1800s, an article in The Lancet. And at that time, when you had a sports injury, the, the traditional thinking was you should be put in plaster of Paris and rested for a long time. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Wharton Hood said, oh, well, uh, we'll tape you up and we'll get you back out on the pitch as quickly as possible. And uh, it kind of, I think, was the, the maybe like the the first person to think about like a really active approach to sports injury rehab back in the 1800s. So be very interested to hang out with him and, and see, <laughs> see how he came to that way of thinking, which was so, so against what the common thinking was at that time. Mm. So yeah, yeah, I've no idea if it would be an easy person to chat to, but I'd be interested <laughs> to pick their brains. Yeah, <laughs> I bet there will be a nice combination. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The more you read about these people, and especially Descartes, I think would be. I was surprised by having this idea of that was what he did, right? And yeah. it's far more sophisticated. He was a he was a well great philosopher yeah yeah <laughs> so he has he had his reasons <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> perhaps and i would be like i would be be lovely to be a fly in the wall there yeah yeah uh, so <laughs> even if i'm not invited so um thank you adam pleasure uh, nice to chat like this yeah yes yeah, great mm -hmm. um yes it's, it's great to have um this wider view different specialists different angles uh, to what we're trying to bring with Love Up Scientific and uh, we're excited to to air this uh, episode um, probably somewhere later this month. And um, um, yes, so thank you for listening as well for everyone who joined and um, uh, this was the pain, uh, pain podcast from Love Up Scientific. Um, if you want to learn more about everything to get more confident with treating people in pain, uh, go to our website you will find so, so many resources we have gathered over the last couple of years so um, and um, we will follow up probably with something that is um, related to tendinopathies and uh, growing pain and I see uh, I see if I can invite two people it'll be Ebony and you probably <laughs> to, <laughs> set, be cool. to, to yeah. set up something to get a get a reasonable and a lovely conversation to set up and um, to learn about this specific conditions. So uh, thank you for listening and um, we catch up in two weeks. Thank you.